Across America and around the world, famous vintners and favorite destinations. We share the stories behind the wines. Welcome to Vintage, hosted by the voice of wine, Brian Bushlack. Episode 2 now in our six-part series celebrating Knutson Vineyard's 50th anniversary. A lineup of Oregon wine legends joining us in this series. Paige Knutson-Coles co-hosting with me as we welcome the legendary Dick Erath in our opening episode. We'll also have Veronique Druin, who along with her family brought the Burgundian influence to Oregon. Allison and Alex Sokol-Blosser also in our lineup. Vineyard guru Alan Holstein and his son Jackson will join us, along with Australian Brian Crozier, who co-founded the Dundee Wine Company with Cal Knudsen in 1987. Well, for those of you enjoying those Oregon Argyle bubbles, you have Cal Knudsen and Mr. Crozier to thank for teaming up with a Texan who traveled the world's wine trails to make award-winning sparkling wine in Oregon's Willamette Valley. Rollins Souls is among the most successful and well-known winemakers in Oregon history and across the country and around the world for that matter. Rollins wines have been named among the top 100 wines in the world by Wine Spectator more than a dozen times. That alone, a unique distinction among Oregon winemakers. Rollin has also been named one of the 20 most admired winemakers in North America by Vineyard and Wine Management Magazine. He's made wine all over the world, including Australia, France, Switzerland, the Napa Valley, and of course, in Oregon. He moved to the Willamette Valley in the 1980s, and in 1987, along with Brian Crozier, co-founded Argyle Winery, now one of the largest and most successful wineries in Oregon. Obviously well-known for the production of world-class sparkling wines, but also award-winning Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Knudsen Vineyards was Argyle's founding vineyard, and its name still appears on Argyle's top-tier wines. Paige and her three brothers are now the second generation to farm Knudsen Vineyards, started by their father, Cal Knudsen, and they continue a long partnership with Rollin. One of my favorite guys in Oregon wine, the humble, talented, and wonderful winemaker, Mr. Rollin Souls. I got to be honest, I'll tell you the truth. Uh, the first time I met you probably 15 years ago was for the radio show that I used to do. And right. I mean, at the time, even then with Argyle, I remember I met you there. I was kind of nervous because, you know, you were this legendary guy, right? And, <laughs> and I was nervous to interview you. And I was so thrilled that you were so warm and welcoming and down to earth and, and getting to know you. And and it's been great to get to know you and Corby over the years. And what a great story. I get kind of emotional because, I mean, getting to know you, it's, it's, it's such a great story. So I want to ask you, you know, all of these places around the world uh, that you had worked or visited you know you grew up down in texas and you'd been all around the country and around the world as a kid um what was it about the willamette valley um that that made you choose the willamette valley because you could have gone literally anywhere yeah i I don't know i think about that every once in a while but my my gateway if you will into the wine industry was through switzerland 
So I had worked a, a summer in a Pinot Noir vineyard in Switzerland. And, you know, they don't grow Cabernet and Merlot there. <laughs> and it's pretty green. And in the distance, there's these beautiful snow-covered mountains that, you know, even in the summertime, they have snow on them. And it, maybe it was, you know, that experience and then visiting the Willamette Valley in the springtime in 1979, it would, you know, the valley here is so green and lush this time of year, and the mountains are, have snow. Even the coast range has, you know, a dusting of snow on them, uh, even right now. Uh, I, I think that was probably a lot of it uh, that attracted me. But the second most endearing part of it is the, you know, the, the first waivers uh, that came through here or that established uh, here in the Willamette Valley, including Dickey Rath, uh, were so... Uh, friendly and so open and so uh, accommodating we went around to every pretty much every winery you know wasn't very many of them you count them on both hands and it was great tasting those pinot noirs and the chardonnays and the and the mirror turgals and the rieslings and you could tell there was an energy here that was not uh, the same anywhere else i'd been so i think it was the beauty and then the people that got me here in the Willamette. Well, Roland, our connection started in 1987 when Knutson Vineyards became the founding grape source for what was then the Dundee Wine Company, now Argyle Winery. How did you and my dad, Cal Knutson, first meet? Uh, I'd put it down to Alan Holstein. I think you'll interview him at some point. Yep. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was already managing Knutson Vineyards. And I'd been in communication um, a lot with Alan before I arrived here in the Willamette Valley. And so, uh, and then with bringing in, if you think about it, Argyle was the first foreign investment. So we brought in um, Brian Crozer with his partner, uh, Ian McNee, and, um, and a, a New York importer, Robert Chatterton. And it was pretty enticing to have that kind of interest in the Willamette Valley. And then, you know, uh, Cal was a smart guy. He had a lot of um, acreage in the ground. And um, paint a picture, uh, in the, even in the late 80s, uh, you almost couldn't sell Pinot Noir. People were actually pulling out Pinot Noir and planting Mirror Turgau and Chardonnay. Uh, it was pretty grim. But and why was that? If this is such a great region for Pinot we, Noir. Because we didn't know what we were doing yet. And, you know, we only had two, well, you had three selections of Pinot Noir to make. And our viticulture was, you know, by far and large designed after California, uh, which was just not conducive to the environment uh, up here on the Willamette Valley. We're much uh, cooler and all hillside slopes. Nobody's on the valley floor like you could be in California. And um, and the other part of it was, I mean, my joke used to be that uh, there was one little bitty winery in Carneros in California that made all the Pinot Noir that Americans would drink. <laughs> so that was the other part of it is Americans were not drinking uh, Pinot Noir. Hmm. They were drinking Cabernet and they were on the cusp of starting to drink Merlot. There was a big Merlot thing that came up. But they weren't drinking Pinot Noir. And uh, so uh, it was tough. In 1992, out of Knudsen Vineyards, I believe we sold uh, Pinot Noir 
up into Washington State for six hundred dollars a ton. Jeepers! It was it was brutal. The top of Knudsen Vineyards uh, was planted in Mueller Turgau, mm-hmm. and so you know, you know it was a. Uh, it, 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 people today, the winemakers that are in the industry here, uh, did not experience a time when they couldn't sell Pinot Noir. Mm-hmm. And so we had barely scratched the surface. And the other part of it is when you're a new, young wine region, it was super difficult to get wholesalers to bring your wines in. Mm-hmm. So you could, you know, fly over to New Orleans, which loves French wine and if you made a good Pinot Noir, they might be interested in it, but then you would have to sell through a wine wholesaler and you couldn't get one to bring you on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was that uh, gatekeeper action going on too. So with all that in the background, Cal you know, had already planted a, a rather significant vineyard, but not quite half of what it is today. And uh, he knew the value of trying to find someone that could uh, make really good wine, first of all, out of canoes and vineyards, and perhaps farm it in a better fashion, because that's the one thing uh, he was ex- exercised about was if, the, if if you could convince him that you were going to make better wine off of his grapes by doing X, Y, or Z, he would pony up the money to do it. Mm-hmm. So as a result, we were the, the canoes and vineyards was the first vineyard in the Willamette Valley for old vines that put in irrigation because we realized that uh, we need to have a little bit of water in August during Verazon when it's a big nitrogen demand to cause these grapes to one, develop flavor and uh, uh, two, to keep the vines healthy at the same time. And believe it or not, they would actually ripen slightly ahead of unirrigated vines on the same property. So that was just an example. It was a big investment to make, and uh, Cal Knudsen was willing to do it if it was high quality. No, that's great. He he did when we were kids. You always knew if you went shopping with Dad, he would buy the best stuff. My mother was much more frugal, <laughs> <laughs> so we always signed up to go sense. with him. You know, in addition to his affinity for the region of Burgundy, Dad really loved Champagne, and he felt strongly that the climate and soils of the Northern Willamette Valley were really well suited to the uh, production of Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, and Pinot Meunier, which you know are the primary grapes that you find in that region of Champagne in France, and those most often used in the production of Champagne. Why did you and Brian Crozier decide to affiliate with my father and commit to buy grapes from Knutson Vineyards? Well, we recognized uh, the Dundee Hills as being important to anybody's program if you moved in, but the next year, uh, Domain Duran, Oregon, uh, uh, Robert Duran moved in and bought into the Dundee Hills. And so you know, Dundee Hills was important to us. Uh, and Cal was uh, a large grower at the time. And the, the final thing was uh, Alan Holstein was integral to the Argyle plan uh, to have, he was one of, you know, for sure, the one or two best viticulturalists in all of the Willamette Valley. And uh, and we wanted him working for, I wanted him working with me. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, the you know, the two of us uh, really uh, got off to a great start. And um, 
and you'll have a great interview with him when he talks about farming for uh, Domain Drun and farming for Stoller and and then subsequently planting all those vineyards that we planted with Argyle down in the mm-hmm. old Amity Hills. Mm-hmm. So it was a great partnership, really great partnership. Um, and so that's kind of how things rolled. It, and we we really hadn't intended to make necessarily to make sparkling wine, even though I had been um, enjoying sparkling wine made by Rich Cushman. And uh, so there was a sparkling Riesling by Fred Arterberry, too. No kidding. Wow. Uh, Rich Cushman was making sparkling wine at, at the old Chateau Benoit. Mm-hmm. And it was a diamond in the rough. You could really tell there was something uh, interesting and vibrant about sparkling wine. And so we felt like if you could inject the right kind of capital uh, into the program, you could make some pretty good sparkling wine. The second part of it, remember, we were still planted with wide spaces. We were still planted uh, without uh, rootstocks, and we didn't have that. We had one clone of and a selection of Chardonnay and three selections of Pinot Noir to choose from. So it's nothing like the palette we have today with all the uh, newly uh, imported, well, not that nearly, 1990 imported French selections. Mm But with, with sparkling wine, we felt like we could make a consistently high-quality um, wine year in and year out, no matter what nature gives us. Uh, in 1984, it was we were still remembering 1984. It was the coldest dang vintage since 2010 and 2011. And, uh, you know, you get years like that, 91 and 96. And, uh, you know, late, late harvested years and trying to make still wine off of those the existing vineyards was could be very problematic if Mother Nature didn't jump in. But mm-hmm. we could make sparkling wine and we could make a sparkling wine that was what I could say is ripe fruit without high natural uh, without losing high natural acidity. Mm hmm. Roland, you're dropping some some big names here. Arterberry, right? I mean, come on. You're pulling some stories out. I haven't even heard the last 15, 20, 25 years. Um, and before we I continue the conversation, uh, the, the the love is rolling in. Love your wine, Roland. Hello from Connecticut. Uh, you know, I mean, you, you know, you got this fan base that's not only, you know, national, but worldwide, really. And, you know, I want to ask you about the, the time at Argyle, you know, 26 years there, 87 to 2013, you you built that into one of the largest wineries in Oregon um, and sparkling, right? I mean, you go around Oregon wine country now, and I don't want to say everybody's doing a sparkling, but I remember like two or three or four years ago, I started here, you know, hey, we're going to do a sparkling, right? And I thought, and every time I heard that, I thought of you, right? I thought, you know, you're, you're the guy who, you know, you know, put that seed in the ground, you know, 25, 30 years ago, right? So here we are with Argyle, one of now one of the largest tasting rooms in Oregon, a beautiful facility in Dundee. But, you know, go back to that time before Argyle, and I want to know what it was about that property and your vision at the time, because, I mean, back in the early 80s, there was nothing there. I mean, it was, you know, right? I mean, talk talk about that. About Knudsen Vineyards, when well, there's nothing there? And Ar- <laughs> well, well, no, in Argyle, too. I mean, you just, you know, you had to well, have this vision you, for something that didn't exist, right? 
Yeah, we made some Chardonnay and we made sparkling wine, the first um, couple of vintages, and no red wine. And um, and tell you what, it was like one hand clapping in the forest because (laughs) uh, remember there was a giant recession that hit about 19, whatever, 89 or 90 or whatever, and no one was drinking sparkling wine. So it was grim, and we were the only one really out there making a lot of it. So you couldn't sell that. And then we made Chardonnay, and if it didn't taste like, you know, something that was pineapple upside down cake, nobody wanted to buy that either. And, uh, but it, yeah, it was pretty brutal, frankly. Uh, then the, we didn't start making Pinot until 1992. And mainly the reasoning behind that was that uh, we felt like uh, 92 and, and afterwards, we had discovered a balance in the vineyard through activities that uh, Alan Holstein had uh, put in operationally into those vineyards. And we felt like we could make a, a proper delicious red wine year in and year out. Because remember, that was the rule. When you're a young wine region, it's, it's brutally important that you not have a misstep at all that you produce the goods year in and year out, no matter what Mother Nature gives you. And one thing that folks out there should realize, the Willamette Valley, uh, there's no two vintages, in my mind, uh, that have ever really been the same. They're either, you know, they can be the driest on record, the wettest on record. I mean, we've had up to eight inches of rain during harvest. My joke about those is the people will ask you, well, Roland, did you pick before the rain? And I go, dear heart, I picked before the rain. I picked during the rain. I picked after the rain. And, you know, we're not used to a wine region that uh, has that much, uh, uh, you know, variability. 2011 and 10, both were years that we picked, uh, in, you know, into November. Uh, I mean, you just don't do that in America. And so uh, it's a it's a wild ride up here, but the whole idea is, despite the what mother nature, nature gives you, you still want to produce a wine that you can you know put your label on, and really enjoy it and uh, and have people go like, oh wow, this is really good wine. And drink it year not, after year. Americans are not used to wine regions where there is vintage variation, mm-hmm. and. Um, now they can be. It's it's a gift. The Willamette Valley is a gift to America, uh, in my view, where you can really taste, line up five years in a row, and they'll taste very differently, whether it's Chardonnay, sparkling wine, or a, a red wine Pinot. I'm drinking. And yet the, qu- the quality uh, is very good, no matter what the variability gives you. If you're doing the right thing, it can be. Mm-hmm. You can stumble. Be careful. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so I'm drinking, for example, I'm drinking Rocco 2012. I've grabbed this out of the library. Good for you, Knutson. There it is. Knutson 2012. Oh, awesome. And 2012 was a great year. That was easy. In 2012, I wore a Hawaiian shirt the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> I can just see it. <laughs> you know, in uh, 1998, you'll remember this, Knutson Vineyards is one of the first in Oregon to plant Pinot Meunier because my father felt 
well, I always say he felt it was the secret sauce to sparkling wine. And I, I believe that you and he had kind of a differing point of view at, uh, on that decision. Do, do I have that right? Uh, that's a fun story. I think uh, Cal and I probably started discussing Pinot Meunier in 1990. <laughs> and his deal, his deal every year was that, that, that Pinot Meunier uh, was the secret that the Champenoise had that they were trying to discourage everybody else in the world to uh, plant because, you know, uh, it was really the secret to the to Champagne's success. And I tell Cal, I go like, well, you know, let's look at the map. And we look at the map of Champagne and, and uh, all the lesser regions going down the Marne towards Paris, you know, which are colder and colder and colder. They're all Pinot Meunier. <laughs> and I go, Cal, Pinot Meunier is hamburger helper for champagne. <laughs> we call it an extender. <laughs> and he he would just shrug and walk away, you know. And, and But the next year, he brings it up again. The next year, he brings it up again. Finally, you know, we had that Mirror Turgau sitting up at the top. And I go, okay, fine. <laughs> put, put your stupid Meunier in. And then, so we, the great uh, partnership between the two. It was put pretty your... funny. So then what I would do, which was really fun, uh, we made a number of what you call base wines, you know, where you make a a still wine out of Pinot Noir that's white and a still wine out of Chardonnay, of course, it's white, that was meant to be bubbled up for champagne for sparkling wine. And I would line up all the Chardonnays and all the Pinot Noirs, and I would mix in the Pinot Meunier uh, you know, and not, and just say, here's the Pinots and here's the Chardonnays. And he would go through and taste them and I'd have him rank them, you know, one through, you know, 15 type deal. It was brutal because base wines are really high acid mm-hmm. and really low pH and it grabs your saliva and just, it's not very pretty. And it, and I kind of like doing that with the cow anyway, cause he, I'd really get him slobbering. It was pretty funny. <laughs> and, uh, but he would taste through all the Pinots and I go, Cal, what's number one? And every time number one was what we called block two, which was entirely Pinot Noir. And right above, and basically the same, you know, soil type, everything was his Meunier. And Meunier, in his, his ranking, was always the lowest Pinot. And when we would do the reveal, you could just see him do the shrug. Oh. <laughs> And we'd do it again the next year and the next year and the next year. But, you know, danged if he didn't, uh, you know, prove himself uh, in 2006. And it was just sheer chance, you know, how sometimes you come up with really good things by making, real, you know, stupid decisions and, and mistakes. And I was pretty sick of Pinot Meunier by 2006. And, um, and, I, and I never liked the brute rosé that we made it at Argyle. It was just too Pinot Noir-like, and, mm. and I don't know, just it lacked elegance. And, and um, believe it or not, I'm kind of, you know, I'm into elegant wine. Uh, it's hard to believe, I know, um, <laughs> the way that I speak, but I am. Uh, and so, you know, I go, well, I don't like this Pinot Meunier, so I'm just going to dump it into the Pinot Brut Rosé in a trial. You know, you do a trial on the on the lab bench to see what might work with what. So I put the Meunier in with the base that I was going to use for my Brut Rosé. And 
oh my god feathers <laughs> it was it was the first time that i brought elegance into our brute rosé it's the first time i smelled rose petals in the wine and uh it was uh it was it, it's just a stunner and well what what is the quality that pinot meunier adds to sparkling wine what what would you say it is pinot meunier is a lower acid wine so it's better to grow in cool places it's more subtle and it does have that rose petal uh it has spice it it just doesn't have very much uh fruit to it you know or a punch of that of that apple and pear fruit that you and plum that you can get from pinot noir uh it, it it's and it's generally uh um can be uh it tastes older than it than it when it when it's younger it tastes mm-hmm. a little bit older mm-hmm. and i mean it can make i mean i've had delicious pinot meunier wines out of champagne and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but, you know, you've never seen a Champenoise uh, that has a Grand Cru Pinot Noir vineyard or a Grand Cru um, Chardonnay vineyard uh, tear it out and plant Pinot Meunier. Mm. It, it, just it doesn't, doesn't happen. happen. <laughs> no. But it's and it's a beautiful vine. I encourage everybody that goes to Knudsen Vineyards on uh, one of Paige's walks uh, during the um, especially um, early summer uh, to walk up to that Pinot Meunier. It'll, it'll test your heart, make sure you're healthy. And um, look at those leaves. They're, they look silver from a distance. Mm-hmm. They have uh, little hairs all over the leaves. And it's, it's actually a very beautiful uh, vine. And you know, Meunier is uh, the French word for the flower miller. And it looks as though the vines have been dusted with flour. It's really quite lovely. So, Roland, I have another somewhat personal question. What, what, how did my dad influence your life and your career? Uh, well, Cal was our, um, once he, uh, in, he and, you know, his, his cadre of, um, what you would call them, uh, bon vivants, invested together uh, into a minority sharing of shareholding of Argyle. Um, and so Cal became our chairman. And, uh, you know, they kind of broke the mold after that generation, it seems like to me. He was very uh, steady, uh, most always positive. And he was somebody that I could pick up the phone in some of our darkest moments. And he'd, you know, talk me off the cliff, uh, as it were. And uh, I really appreciated that very much is, you know, the old saying of steady hand on the tiller. Um, that was uh, Cal Knudsen. And, uh, and he, he was, you know, a great supporter of the arts as well. Mm-hmm. Can't tell you how many cases of wine we took up to Seattle and spread it all around. And that was really fun. Um, and there was nothing more fun than to uh, go out to vineyards uh, with Cal and walk around Knudsen Vineyards or show him one of the new places and showing what's going on, and uh, yeah, he was—he was a steady, steady guy, very steady. He respected you a lot, and he was very glad that you were in relationship, the two of you. Yeah, he got a hold of a bottle of our 1987 Chardonnay, and took it to Kihei, Hawaii, <laughs> and shared it with some of his friends, and it just—it just hit him right between the eyes. And I think that's when I think that's when we really hooked him. It was when he tried that wine because that was it may have been Oregon's first top one hundred. I don't know. It's for sure wow. the top first 
top 100 uh, Chardonnay, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 87 vintage. And boy, it, it, it was my challenge to try to replicate that forever. <laughs> forever. I don't think I, I, I still haven't. <laughs> yeah, that's great. <laughs> but he, was, he was a fantastic man, and I was lucky, very lucky, to have uh, worked with uh, Cal Knudsen very much. So, one exciting time. We, uh, I managed to get Argyle invited year after year to this really fun thing, and I encourage people to go to at least once. Uh, the Wine Spectator show in uh, New York City, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where some of the best uh, producers from around the world uh, arrive. And so I took um, Cal with me, and he was my wingman <laughs> one year. And watching him uh, hippity hop from you know table to table of all these great burgundies and uh, great champagnes, and then he would wander over to the first growth, you know, Bordeaux's and he was a kid in the candy shop it, it, it was shop and he was uh, totally proud that uh, a winery like argyle uh, was invited to something like that and that he uh, had uh, very much a uh, role in argyle's success so that was that was really fun that's great that's a great it, story it was mm-hmm. fun hey Paige, what's it like for you to hear these stories Oh, it's very heartwarming. I, I, we loved our father very much. And you know how when you're a kid, you know your dad as your parent. But to be able to hear these stories of people who dealt with him in a business relationship and a personal relationship more peer-to-peer, it just it's just really filling in a lot of um, just wonderfulness about my dad. He was a lovely man, as, yeah. as Roland said. Well, and, and Roland, you left Argyle. In 2013, we thought, what are you doing? Right? I mean, what's going on? Like Argyle without, what? whoa, whoa, wait a minute. But but you did it, right? And, and you go, you co-found Rocco with Corby. And um, now, you know, I remember we, you first did it. You were like, we don't, we're not going to talk about the bubbles. Let's talk about Pinot Noir, right? Because because that, when you, I know when you founded it, you know, we're going to make amazing bubbles. That's a given. But we want to talk about our Pinot Noir and our Chardonnay and, and, uh, and, and you know, and then obviously RMS with the amazing sparklings that you produce. We knew that was a given, but maybe talk about that. Kind of what was it that you, you know, sparked you to, to, to do that? Well, I'm really fortunate that, um, you know, Cal was a real mentor to me. And I really tried to study uh, what mentorship really means. And it, it's kind of a two way street where Cal was, you know, open to learning uh, things from me and from Alan. And uh, we, and at the same time, he was coaching us at the same time. And that's true mentorship. And so, uh, you know, when uh, Cal passed away, uh, I, I, who am I going to call on the phone anymore? Mm-hmm. So it was, it was a tough one. Um, but so I'm really grateful that uh, Argyle continues to engage, you know, my interest in, in, in I call it a mentorship, where I do get to get across uh, their winemakers and their viticulture team there. And I really appreciate that because uh, to work with young people uh, there is really exciting for me. Uh, I, I mean, I enjoy the heck out of it. And then uh, I, I had never uh, started a wine company with my wife, uh, Corby. She'd been in the wine industry for a very long time. Uh, she, she was uh, the second 
uh, director uh, for uh, International Pinot Noir Celebration. She was early days the director for our Yamhill County Winery Association, which was mm-hmm. a very early rendition of the Willamette Valley Winery Association. Mm-hmm. So she uh, really had been circling important to the wine industry here in the Willamette Valley for a long time. And so she's my president at Rocco. She's the CO in the, in the co in Rocco. And uh, we started Rocco because our uh, wits and vineyard was just so rock solid, delicious in the Chehalem mountains. And how could you not do it? Um, and we started it just, I started just doing Pinot Noir because Pinot Noir is the easiest thing I find to make, make a really good Pinot Noir year in and year out. Um, and then the, the next hardest is Chardonnay. And then literally for me, the most challenging wine that I make is our sparkling wine. It, and so I kind of wanted to just take a vacation. So we did Pinot Noir <laughs> for five years. And then my my president says, well, you know, I like drinking Chardonnay. And I go, oh, okay. So we started making Chardonnay. And, uh, it, it's been really successful. And then five, I call it mission creep. Five years in, five more years, 10 years in. You know, look at our cellar. It's full of champagne. Why aren't we making any sparkling wine? And so, doink, here we are with the RMS Brute. So it's it's kind of the opposite of the way that Argyle developed, and, uh, but it's funny that you know, it would develop like that. And so we're, you know, that's where we are, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, and sparkling wine. Sparkling wine. I, I've got another question for you, Ron, regarding Knutson Vineyards and the, the scale, the trial and error, all the viticultural innovation that went on there in part at, under your direction. How would you say Knutson Vineyards has influenced or impacted the development of the Dundee Hills and, and the wine industry in Oregon? Uh, I'd say that, um, uh, you know, especially through Alan Holstein, um, you know, he was, he'll tell you all the stories that would be really good. Uh, he, uh, we were both very influenced by uh, Robert, Dr- Robert Druin mm-hmm. and Bob Druin and, and, and Cal was too. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we, we were, we were always on a replanting episode at Knudsen Vineyards. Knudsen Vineyards was planted, you know, classic California style with eight, feet between the rows and unrooted and then we moved to seven feet between the rows and unrooted and then we moved and then eventually we moved into uh, this five feet between the rows and on root stocks with all these clones and one thing that used to happen back in the day a lot of people didn't want to buy Knudsen fruit because they didn't want to sign a long-term agreement because it was so high in elevation uh, that uh, it wasn't, uh, it didn't have a reputation for getting perfect ripeness every year because it was it was tough out there, and we were using the, the wrong um, um, viticulture. And Cal recognized that, and he's like, "Nope, this is the perfect spot. I know it is." And I mean, you can see the view uh, behind Page there, and he was willing to invest a ton of money into replanting into irrigation. And today, I'm I'm going to tell you, if 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 you had made uh, pick grapes and made wine at a Knudsen Vineyards in 1985 onward, and then you could pop in today, you would not know the di- you, you just would you would think you're in a different vineyard mm-hmm. because today Knudsen Vineyards ripens 
way, way earlier than it ever has. And in fact, uh, uh, it's consistent as all heck and it's uh, ripening profile. And I think everybody would be, I mean, gobsmacked to have a piece of Knudsen Vineyards right now. Uh, and it's all due to that reinvestment that Cal spearheaded uh, by listening to uh, Robert Druin, listening to Brian Crozer, listening to Alan Holstein, and, uh, and then reacting in a proper fashion, mm-hmm. not getting lost in the woods. Yeah, we said this would be 30 minutes, and you know what? I really don't care. We're going to go maybe all night long with you. I'm sorry, everyone. I mean, no, no, no. We're all enjoying wine and uh, this conversation. So, I mean, I'm not going to put the brakes on it. Um, And we did have questions rolling in. You know, what was interesting um, while you were chatting there, it leads us right into our next question about uh, Alex Denning asked uh, in the chat here, you know, do you see a lot more growth for sparkling wines in Oregon. That led right into our next question about <laughs> the future of the industry. And, you know, I talked about this, how, you know, I'm rolling around Oregon wine country a couple of years ago and I start, everybody's going to make sparkling. So talk about sparkling. And, you know, we've, we've, we've touched on Chardonnay and the growth of Chardonnay, but um, maybe give us your perspective, Roland, on the future of Chardonnay from Oregon. All right. And um, sparkling. By the way, we've been here so long, I think I've drunk almost half of this bottle already. <laughs> Is that all? I, wish, I bet y'all wish y'all, y'all had some. <laughs> it's pretty darn good. Uh, so it's just opening up deliciously. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't, with Chardonnay and with um, sparkling wine, it's it's been so difficult to compete uh, with uh, Americans' view of Chardonnay. It's you know, been all California-based, which is understandable. It's It's a unique style. No one, no one has been able to replicate California's. And I'm, I'm broad brushing. I apologize to anybody that likes California Chardonnay because I, I do. I mean, I, I enjoy a lot of California Chardonnays and they are very different from, you know, it, region, region to region, producer to producer. But in a broad spectrum, uh, you know, every uh, new world country has tried to make a California style Chardonnay and failed. And that's what Americans have been raised on. And we can't do it here in the Willamette Valley. And dear heart, we, we tried 87, 88, 89. 90. We, we can't. You can't do it. Uh, we, it's just too cool here and uh, too high in latitude, late ripening, et cetera, et cetera. We make apples and pears and best case scenario, white peach and melon in our, in our sparkling wines. Uh, sorry, Chardonnays. And so it's tough to compete. But we're chipping away. Uh, people, uh, you know, if you, you can't just be a wine region that makes Pinot Noir alone. And our Chardonnays are an international style of Chardonnay. Uh, and what I mean by that is if you uh, grew up in Stockholm, Sweden, uh, and you tasted our Chardonnay, you go, yep, that's Chardonnay. Because they grew up on, you know, French Chardonnays. Mm-hmm. So we're much more of an international style of Chardonnay uh, than down south. And it's nice to know that in America, we can make two distinctively delicious styles of Chardonnay. Um, so, and yeah, it's, I, I really love drinking Willamette Valley Chardonnays. And I know that folks out there, if you, if you get into them, you'll never go back. It's just, 
it's they're stunning. Well, and, and Roland, this is not a new uh, refrain for you. You you were one of six or seven winemakers that formed the Oregon Chardonnay Alliance way back. I mean, you've been talking about Chardonnay for a long time. Um, yeah, we all felt like one hand clapping in the woods. What? Yeah, but we've. I mean, we're breaking it down now. There's more uh, people making Chardonnay in the in the Willamette Valley than ever before. Uh, people that had sworn that they would never make Chardonnay are making Chardonnay. So there's a there's a real interest there, and you can, uh, yeah, you can make some delicious Chardonnays here. It's look, the majority of Burgundy is Chardonnay mm-hmm. by far. I, I want to say it's maybe sixty five percent of Burgundy is Chardonnay. So there's something to that. Um, and then sparkling wine, we really felt like we were one hand clapping in the woods. Uh, and the deal about sparkling wine is, one, you've heard me mention before, it's really tough to get it right. Uh, there's a tiny little window to pick, and then there's things in the cellar that you can do to that would you know destroy sparkling wine. Sparkling wine shows all your misdeeds in the cellar. And... The other part of it is the equipment is a expensive and b uh, difficult to wrap your head around for for uh, for uh, riddling and for disgorging and for labeling and capsuling and corking and wiring. I mean, it's it's there's a lot of impediments. And then the last impediment is that if you really want to make good um, method champenoise, method traditional uh, sparkling wine. You will grow the grapes, make the wine, and bottle it four times before you ever sell a bottle. So that means you're going to have a lot of sparkling wine in, in, the, in the warehouse, which is cash. Mm-hmm. And you've put a lot of cash into that warehouse before you made your first sale. Uh, that was something we realized at Argyle that was like, yikes, in the early days. And so there's many impediments. Uh, now, the reason there's a few people out there, uh, well, a number of people now that are making small amounts of sparkling wine is because uh, my uh, former assistant winemaker, Andrew Davis, um, uh, Corby and I uh, got him started with his Radiant uh, Wine Company, which d- provides custom services. And all through Champagne, it's custom services for uh, uh, tirage and for uh, uh, disgorging and all that kind of stuff. So it's not uncommon, but the Willamette Valley had never seen it before. So we took that risk, and Andrew, I swear, has taken it to another level. The guy is unbelievable. Uh, how uh, attention to detail and how successful he's made the company. It's really neat. It's I applaud having all these other wineries making sparkling wine and, you know, it won't be in my lifetime, uh, but you know, it'll be in our kids or our grandkids' lifetime. People will look back at the Willamette Valley as the top place for making sparkling wine in the new world. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so it's you know, it took a long time to get there, but we're getting there. Fifty years, fifty years. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty powerful way to end this. I mean, really. I mean, what you just said is. I mean, I'm trying to absorb that. That's uh, that's a pretty powerful statement. Well, today it's pretty exciting. The Willamette Valley is sought out around the world. Uh, just even during the pandemic, Rocco alone has added uh, four different countries 
into uh, our uh, it's hard to believe people would reach out and say, Hey, we want your wine. I go, well, there's a pandemic. going on. <laughs> I go, well, we don't care. Read it. <laughs> and so, you know, people know the Willamette Valley and they're looking for quality and they're looking for the uh, uh, places that can produce high quality year in and year out. And uh, many, many uh, wine producers in the Willamette Valley have proven that to be so. And there's a lot of great energy uh, behind our wine industry right now. It's, mm-hmm. it's pretty neat. Yeah. Well, it's our Q&A session now. And as we approach uh, wherever you may be, uh, 15 minutes until the top of the hour, plenty of time. Might as well extend this. Um, I guess I'll go first. And everybody who's in the <laughs> chat, you know, if you've got a question for Rollin or Paige, um, I mean, I, I'm blown away by hearing the stories about your dad, Paige. I mean, and, you know. We didn't, you know, we haven't heard those stories before. I don't know if you've heard those stories, but, you know, what a, a mentor. I mean, you, we always focus on the, the farming and the viticulture, and, and obviously it's wine, of course, so we do that. But there's this business side to it, and Rollins shared a lot of that business side of, you know, when things are going really bad, as they often do in business, and you think it's lights out and I'm going to... I'm going to apply for a job down the road here, right? I mean, that had to happen, Rollin. It had to happen a number of times over your career where you're thinking, man, it's this is it, right? Yeah. He was a good, he, like I said, steady hand on the tiller. It was pretty neat. You know, his guys, um, uh, you know, most of them were Seattle, and uh, one of them was Portland, really dear, dear guy from Cascade Industries. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, wonderful people. And um, every one of those uh, guys at one time or the other, uh, I remember I made some speech about, you know, I'm never going to make a draw from you guys. We're never going to ask you for more money. It's never going to happen. And uh, they all go, yeah, and start clapping and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Here, Ron, have another drink. And, and then each one of them, one by one, uh, with Cal in the lead, kind of did the old arm wrap and wrapped me around and said, you know, great speech. We're really glad to be, you know, part of Argyle. And uh, that part that you said about never asking for more money, don't worry about it. And they all had stories about Microsoft, you know, for example, and Starbucks. Starbucks, right. And all these folks, you know, that uh, asked for more money. And uh, it was pretty funny. But mm-hmm. we never did. We never asked for more money. And uh, but, but, it, but it made me feel so uh, much more comfortable about the future of Argyle uh, when all those guys were right up front saying, don't you worry about it. What was it like for you? Uh, question here, uh, you know, with Rocco, did you feel energized? Did you feel like you were back rewinding the clock? I mean, you had all that experience, right? You, you, you knew what you knew, but, but this was your, you and Corby's deal. Was this like, kind of like, you know, starting over again in, in some respect? Rocco's been a kick in the pants. Uh, I've never, you know, shared an office with my wife before. And uh, we just laugh our butts off uh, almost on a daily basis, uh, you know, in between everything else. And and it and she comes up with these really great, you know, concepts and ideas and things like that, that, you know, stick in my head. And she, you know, if I come up with a new, way to ferment red wine she's like all in on it and go like why don't you give it a shot and so so you know you know you could call it you know playing in the sandbox but in a very 
um, serious fashion uh, because you know the if you're if you're a child and you're playing in sandbox is one thing, but if you're uh, you know a veteran child, <laughs> you, when you play in the sandbox, you might come up with something really good. And so that's what we've done at Rocco. And so that's that's kind of been the gift uh, of Rocco for me. And I gotta I gotta say I'm really proud of our folks here at Rocco, and I'm really proud of the wines that we've made. And uh, and it's really kicked up a, a big notch here. And so it's, you know, instead of, instead of Cal walking through Argyle whistling and jangling his keys, it's me walking through Rocco whistling and jangling my keys now. <laughs> so it's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. That is cool. Paige, do you have anything to add before we wrap up? Well, I would say one of the things that about my father is that he really had vision and he had a lot of experience and he understood how to operate at scale. So he brought this big view to a very nascent industry when uh, things were just beginning. But I liked what you said, Roland, because I think it was very true that uh, he really liked learning from other people. And he was, uh, we call it, we had, he had a day job. He was the head of acquisitions for a big lumber company, big forest products company. And he needed to depend on people like Rollin and Alan and Dick Erath in the early days. Um, but he always checked in. He always wanted to know what was going on. And it, it was a huge joy for him to be developing this vineyard with you, with you guys. And that clearly has come to us as his children. We're so pleased to be second-generation stewards of the vineyard and the legacy. It was a lot of fun, very much a lot of fun. Well, great way to wrap it up. Uh, Thank you, Paige, and uh, thank you, Rollin, as well. To be continued, as I always say, right, until the next conversation (laughs) when we are (laughs) back together again. I know, hey, Zoom's been convenient, but... I know we're all looking forward to getting back out to Oregon wine country uh, mm-hmm. this summer and this fall. And I mean, oh my gosh, I just, every time every time we talk, I'm like, I can't wait until the next time I get to see the two of you literally face-to-face. So we hope you'll join us. We miss uh, you at Salud, Brian. <laughs> yes, I know. We got Salud, uh, you're an integral part of that. Oh. And you've been an integral part of bringing the word uh, to folks for a long time about the Willamette Valley. And so we, we love having you down here. We look forward to seeing you. Well, kind words, much appreciated. And a big thank you to Rollins Souls for joining us. That episode is certainly a keeper. Thanks also to Paige Knutson Coles and her team for all their work behind the scenes to make this a reality. And we thank you as well for downloading this episode of Vintage in our next release. Well, we'll welcome the brother and sister team. Allison and Alex Sokol-Blosser spending time with us as we continue our six-part series celebrating Knudsen Vineyard's 50th anniversary next time on Vintage. Vintage is a presentation of Feedback Media, all rights reserved.